0: a conversation I had a number of years ago with someone who was exploring the Christian faith. And I invited this person to read through the gospel accounts of Jesus and to, to get to know Jesus for himself. And he was doing that. We met together one time and he said that he had been reading on the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaching people how to pray. And he came across that phrase in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray saying, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And he said, John, I have a real problem with that. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, if someone hurts me, I want to hurt them back. He said, I'm a fighter and I want to take out my pound of flesh. And, you know, to be honest, what he said really resonated with me. I I could identify when someone hurts me, my inclination is, is to want to hurt back. And so we talked through that a little bit, and even though that seems very powerful, it seems like we're in control when we adopt that kind of a mindset. It seems like we are putting up protections to keep people from hurting us. It actually is taking us in a very far direction from where Jesus wants to lead us. You see, Jesus calls us to a very different way of being human, one that has experienced and embraced the forgiveness that Jesus himself offers to us. And that forgiveness then begins to overflow into the life of others. At the very heart of Christianity is this idea of the forgiveness of sins. In fact, when Jesus gave some of his last words to his disciples, he told them that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Not just to the Jewish people, but for all peoples. This idea of the forgiveness of sins being offered to us in the name of Jesus is something that he wanted to have proclaimed. And so Jesus thought the forgiveness of sins was very important, not only for us to experience, but also for us to overflow. And one time when Jesus was teaching on this idea of forgiveness, one of his disciples, a fellow named Peter, came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And the Background to that was the teaching of a rabbi at a particular time that said that you should forgive someone up to six times. And so Peter probably thought he was being generous in this idea of seven And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And Jesus went into this parable about what the kingdom of God is like. And he described an owner of this kingdom coming to settle accounts. And one of his people had this great outstanding debt. And even though it was due, and the master could call it due at that moment, this servant said, please have mercy with me. Have patience with me and I will pay it back. And so the master said, very well. And he leaves from that situation. He goes out and he sees someone who just owes him pennies. And he jumps on him and begins to choke him, saying, pay me back now. And this person who owed him pennies said basically the same thing. Have patience with me. Have mercy with me and I'll pay you back. And he refused. And Jesus used that as an illustration to to help us to understand when we come to grips with what he has been teaching, that God is willing to forgive us of everything we should be willing to forgive others as well. In fact, Jesus said, you must forgive your brother from your heart. And that's a difficult thing. For many of us who, who followed Jesus uh, for, for maybe many years, and we know that Jesus wants us to forgive other people, it doesn't get any easier, does it? I mean, we might be able to say, no worries, don't worry about it, no problem, and just kind of brush it off. But that falls short sometimes of actually forgiving someone from the core of our being, right? But Jesus seems to think that because God the Father freely forgives, his forgiven children should freely forgive as well. We've been noting over the last several weeks this quote by Ann Voskamp who said, the tone of our world wounds us in a thousand ways. And that's so true. And yet Jesus calls us to a different way of being human that doesn't respond by hurting back, that doesn't respond by By saying, if someone hurts me, I want to hurt them back. I'm going to take out my pound of flesh. But rather to respond in a way that doesn't add more hurt to this world, but actually brings healing. And so this summer at Mercy Hill Church, we've been in this series called Life Together. We're exploring a new way of being human together. And we've been looking in the New Testament at what we call these one another directives or or one another commands. In other words, folks who gather together as communities of faith to intentionally put into practice what Jesus teaches them, there's a certain way of being with one another that we're called to be. And so we've looked so far at the commands to be devoted to one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to welcome one another, and to show hospitality to one another as well. And this week, we're gonna take one more step, and we're gonna look at this notion of forgiving one another. And so we want to do this because... We're seeking to, to live out a kind of Christianity that moves away from a consumer mindset that simply asks, what's in it for me? To being a close-knit family, a community of faith that leans in towards one another, that doesn't bail on one another, that seeks to bring healing when sometimes we wound one another. And, and so let's let's be honest. I mean, just like any close-knit family, we're gonna rub each other the wrong way sometimes. We're gonna say something that's insensitive or or maybe that just hurt our feelings. Maybe the other person did it intentionally, but maybe unintentionally. And, and sometimes we're going to hurt each other deeply. I, mean, I don't want that to happen, but sometimes we just get so full of ourselves and we're just we're that way sometimes. And so, so instead of bailing on one another, Jesus has a design for a community of faith that actually continues to lean in toward one another, that seeks to bring healing to one another's lives. And central to that is the idea of forgiving one another. And so I want us to to look at this passage in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' handpicked ambassadors. And we're going to see some some very direct words he gives us on this idea of forgiveness. And so as we get ready to look at that, I wonder if you would just pray with me for a moment and and ask ask the Lord to, to teach us and to apply this exactly the way we need to today. Lord, we all know what it's like to live in a world whose tone wounds us in a thousand ways. And if we're honest, we often have that same tone that wounds other people. Sometimes we don't even know it. And sometimes we do know it. Sometimes we do wound, and and we've been wounded deeply by others. And and it's natural for us us to want to to fight back, to to hurt someone who hurts us, Or, or maybe just to bail But if it's true that Jesus calls us to follow him, not just as individuals, but as communities of faith, would you help us to understand what it means to to lean in towards one another and actually to pursue uh, forgiveness with one another? Lord, we we are still fallen. We are are still flawed human beings, and, and we still look after ourselves as number one. And because of that, we do wound. And and so I ask Father that you would help us to understand this this teaching of forgiveness in a new and fresh way. For some of us, we've we've heard this teaching from Jesus before. We've we've seen how the apostles sought to put it in practice in communities of faith, and and we're tempted to check out because we've heard some of this before. And if that's the case, Lord, uh, tune our hearts that we might actually lean in on this again. And maybe some of us are here today, and we're not really sure what we think about this whole. Christian thing, this this Jesus teaching, and pray that you would meet us where we are if that describes us this day as well. Help us to see that we're all the same. We are all in need of forgiveness from you. We're all in need of your grace to be lavished upon us. So help us to understand that and to be transformed by that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the words of one of Jesus' hand-picked ambassadors, a a man who originally was trying to harm the Christian communities. He was seeking to arrest Christians and put them to death. And then Jesus um, met him, the resurrected Jesus met him, turned his life upside down, and now he's promoting the faith that he tried to destroy. So he's writing this letter to some Jesus communities living in the city of Colossae. And this is what he says. Chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And so before we go any further, let's just stop and and note he's he's actually building on an argument. He uses the word then or sometimes it's translated therefore and that means there's something that is that's gone before. So let's before we go very much further in his words here, let's just go back a little bit and see some of what he has been telling these communities of Jesus followers. Back in chapter one he says he that is speaking of God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins so he reminds them that their very identity as followers of jesus is because of god's grace god has come in lavish grace and has rescued them from this description of a domain of darkness that that perfectly describes our our world a domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son because in jesus we have redemption we have been given the forgiveness of sins. So he says a little bit later in chapter one, "You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him." In other words, what Paul is saying is that Jesus himself has, has come in rescue for us to reconcile us back to God, to bring us into relationship with him. And he's done this in order to present us as holy, as as set apart and blameless and and beyond reproach. And then he just says, point blank in chapter three, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, when, when you said yes to Jesus, he tells them something cataclysmic has happened. Your life ended. The life that you knew is now gone. And your life is now defined by Jesus. It's it's hidden with Christ in God. And so that's kind of the background. He describes what God has done for them. So he goes on and says to them, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So he has this idea of of, we're going to be putting something on. You think of clothing, right? We're going to put something on. But he reminds them that they are God's chosen ones. They have been chosen to be God's people, to carry the message of Jesus forward. They are holy. That is, they're they're set apart and they're beloved. They're loved deeply by God. So he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What a list of words here. (laughs) What a wardrobe he calls us to put on. (laughs) It has this idea of Of putting on garments. And so we pull out this garment called compassion. And we clothe ourselves in compassion. We pull out this garment called kindness. And we embody kindness. These are traits that should mark anyone who is following Jesus. We put off an old garment and put on new garments. In fact, just a few verses, he basically said something like this. Back in verses 9 and 10, he said, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. So he says, look, when you became a believer in Jesus, not only did you die, but you put off that old self. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And so there's a new self that is put on. So he says to them, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And he says in another place, just put on Jesus, which is an interesting phrase, isn't it? How do you put someone on? In his mind, we're supposed to be so wrapped up in the person of Jesus that we carry his his character, his his character traits in the life that, that we seek to live. So Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is what we should be increasingly known for as followers of Jesus. And then he says in 13, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So here he tells them we ought to bear with one another, which means sometimes we might find each other unbearable, right? We might say some boneheaded things or say something that, you know, we thought made sense to us but didn't make sense and actually hurt another person. But we're called to, to bear with one another. To be patient with one another. In a world that teaches us that either you hurt back or you bail, Paul says, no, no, no. Following Jesus means you learn how to be patient with one another. To bear with one another. And if anyone has to complain against another, forgiving each other. And then he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So there he lays it out for us. To this early community of Jesus followers and to a community like ours living some 20 centuries later, we are to put on the garment of Jesus. We are to live out his life. And we are to forgive each other. And not just in a superficial way, but from the heart. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So that's our standard right there. And so once again, we're called to build this life of faith, this following of Jesus, to put into practice this new way of being human. We we build that kind of life on the foundation of what God has already done for us. So in one sense, we're not called to become something that we're not, but rather we're called to live out who God says that we are in Christ Jesus. And so to summarize for us, we are called to forgive each other the way that God forgives us. And so in one sense, that seems really clear, doesn't it? It seems easy to kind of get our mind around that. But let's stop and ask the question, how do we forgive as the Lord has forgiven us? Because in, in, in one sense, in theory, it sounds... Sounds good. It sounds easy to forgive. But how does the Lord forgive us? If we're called to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us, then how has the Lord forgiven us? And so I want to just give a handful of suggestions that I think will help serve as pegs in our own life, in our own mind, to get our mind around this. So the first peg that I want us to hang our thoughts on is this. God's forgiveness is the desire of his heart. God's forgiveness is the desire of his heart. Uh, We see this woven throughout scriptures. Let me just give a couple examples. In the book of Isaiah, here we're told that God longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. I mean, God wants to be gracious. And so that's, that's why he moves towards us, to show compassion. In that same book of Isaiah, a little bit later, we were told, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the righteous man his, uh, and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I mean, here we're told that even the worst of the worst can, can leave that behind and turn to God. And part of the incentive of giving this command, this invitation, is that God will have compassion. That he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that a beautiful description of God? Not that he will give you just a smidgen of grace or maybe forgive a couple of our sins or wrongdoings. But he will abundantly pardon. This is captured very well in a poem called Come Ye Sinners. It's been put to music. But in 1759, uh, Joseph Hart wrote these words. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. I mean, it captures perfectly this disposition of God's heart, his desire to want to forgive to give invitations to come, to turn back to him, to forgive. And who can forget that story that Jesus told about this young man who came to his father and said, I want my part of the inheritance. And the father shockingly gives it to him. I mean, in saying that to his father, he's saying essentially, I wish you were dead. And the father shockingly gave him his part of the inheritance and he went and he he squandered it, the scriptures tell us, Jesus tells us, in, in wild living. And as always is the case, the money runs out. And he found himself at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, literally, he was feeding the pigs, looking at what the pigs were eating and wanting to eat what they had. And so he found himself in the depths of despair, far away from his father. But he thought, you know what? I'm going to go back. I'm going to tell my father, Father, have mercy on me. Make me just one of your hired servants. Because he knew at the father's house, at least there was provision for him. So, so he comes back. And Jesus says this father was out just looking on the horizon for any sign of his son coming back. And he looks and he sees him. And the father runs to him and he throws his arms around him in this perfect embrace that we sung about a while ago. Began to kiss him. And the son went into his rehearsed speech. Have mercy on me. Just make me one of your hired hands. And it's like the father ignores him. He just turns and he, he Or he orders the the house to get ready for this massive celebration because his son has come back home. And Jesus wants us to have this idea of a God whose inclination, whose disposition of his heart is to forgive. So that's the first thing that we need to have in our mind. God's own heart has this desire to forgive. And so if we want to forgive like God has forgiven us, then the question becomes, is our own heart inclined that way as well? Jesus one time said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we give the, we're give we given that assurance. So the idea becomes something like this. Since God has clothed himself in forgiveness, we are to clothe ourselves in forgiveness as well. Or if the father, Father's heart is, is bent on forgiveness, then our heart ought to be bent on forgiveness as well. All right? All in good right there, right? We, we can get our minds around that. But here's the second part, and this is... This is actually controversy, even among Christians. But God's forgiveness is conditional. God's heart is bent on forgiveness. He wants reconciliation. This is is why he sends forth his prophets and, and sent forth his son. And Jesus sent forth his apostles to proclaim that there is forgiveness available to people like us. But this forgiveness is conditioned. There's something that must take place for this transaction to take place. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' close friends, put it very succinctly for us. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What's the condition? If we confess our sins, then what? Then God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. So looking back to those words from the book of Isaiah a while ago that we saw, The summons is to come to him, and God will freely pardon. But the condition is to come to him. The son, in Jesus' story, had to return back to his father because that's where grace was found. And so forgiveness, God's forgiveness, is conditioned upon us turning to him in repentance and faith. So let's go back to that passage in Isaiah. I'm going to read it in another translation here and, and add one more verse to it. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Okay, there's the idea of God's heart being inclined or wanting to forgive. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. He will surely, surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. So God, whose heart is inclined to forgive, forgives when we cry out for it, that's the condition we, we want. We have to want to want it. That's how that transaction takes place. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in describing his own ministry, said this. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And a couple of breaths later, he said, this, this is the gospel of the grace of God. That we turn from our our own ways of thinking about being human. We turn from our own desire to be our own boss. We turn from living apart from God, and we turn back to him. And we have faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, that's God's big gift, his, his package given to this world. And whoever believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins, has eternal life. And so we can put it like this. While forgiveness is the desire of God's heart, the actual transaction of forgiveness happens when we confess our sins and place our trust in Jesus. So my friends, this is an important part of Christianity to understand. The message of Jesus is to turn back to God. And when we do so, because of what Jesus has done for people like us, we are given the forgiveness of sins. We're not given a long uh, laundry list of, of things we should do to earn God's forgiveness, it's simply given as a gift. But like any gift, it must be open to be received. And so God gives us the forgiveness of sins in the person of Jesus. And he says, receive Jesus, turn from your sins, receive this forgiveness of sins wrapped in the present of Jesus. And it's yours. That's the condition. And lots of, I I remember having a conversation with a a person who who was really hardened towards Christians, and maybe for some good reasons. He had, he had known some really, uh, <laughs> anyway, he had, he had some bad run-ins with some, some Christians, but he was really angry. And I, and I said to him, look, I understand sometimes Christians can do some crazy bad things, and a lot of things have been done in the name of Jesus that are, that are horrible. Jesus himself would critique that, but at the heart of the message of Jesus is not look how great Christians are, but it's look how great Jesus is. There's this gift that God gives you. And it's wrapped up in Jesus and it's called the forgiveness of sins. Do you want that? And he said, no, I don't. The offer is there. But to be received, there's a condition. You must receive it. You must turn from your sin. You must believe in Jesus. And so if that's how the forgiveness of sins works with God, then in one sense, that's how it has to work with us as well. And in fact, Jesus one time In the Gospel of Luke, he says this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. What's the condition? If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here Jesus sees the transaction of forgiveness between two individuals taking place on the condition of someone repenting, of of turning saying, hey, I'm sorry, I screwed up, would you forgive me? And Jesus says, when that happens, then yeah, you grant that forgiveness. And so I want to unpack this just for a little bit, because sometimes there's this idea that forgiveness is just granted automatically. And while we might have an attitude of forgiveness in our hearts, it can't be in a transaction with another person unless there's a condition. There's one author by the name of Douglas Wilson who helped me a little bit as I thought about this. And he said, we cannot forgive those who are defiant, however much we might like to. In other words, if a person doesn't think they need forgiveness, you can't have a transaction of forgiveness between yourself and that person. We cannot forgive those who are defiant, however much we might like to. Because forgiveness is a transaction If someone steals your car, you can't run down the street after them yelling out your forgiveness. But you can have a heart full of forgiveness, full to the brim, ready to overflow the moment repentance appears. Until that happens, there is no forgiveness. There cannot be a transaction of forgiveness. And he says we need to distinguish between forgiveness in principle and forgiveness accomplished. In other words, forgiveness in principle is that we we have a desire to forgive. But forgiveness accomplished, is actually that actually occurs when the transaction takes place. And for that to happen, there's a condition. The person has to be sorry for what they did in order for that transaction to take place. There's an author by the name of Ken Sandy. He's been very influential in in many circles with his book, The Peacemaker. And he said, when an offense is too serious to overlook and the offender has not yet repented, you may need to approach forgiveness as a two-stage process. This is so helpful to me. He says, you may need to approach forgiveness as a two-stage process. The first stage requires having an attitude of forgiveness. And the second, granting forgiveness. So having this attitude of forgiveness is, is kind of like what we we're talking about with God. He has an inclination or desire of his heart to forgive. And that must be present in us as well. But then there's also another component to it. There's the actual granting of forgiveness that takes place on the condition of repentance. And so Sandy says, having an attitude of forgiveness is unconditional and is a commitment you make to God. Granting forgiveness is conditional on the repentance of the offender and takes place between you and that person. You see what he's saying? Sometimes forgiveness has to take place in two stages. First of all, we have to have this attitude of forgiveness, of the desire to want to forgive. And then that can actually be put into practice when a person owns what they have done. Says, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And then because your heart is already inclined to forgive, you can say, yes, of course, I do forgive you. And so God himself has a desire to forgive. And we ought to as well. God forgives on the condition of repentance. And we ought to as well. Here's another to hang our thoughts on, God's forgiveness is a rock-solid commitment. When God forgives, He doesn't take it back. When He forgives, it's it's final. The psalmist puts it like this: "As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us." Which is kind of mind-boggling if you stop and think about it. How far is the east is from the west? <laughs> I mean, if you think about traveling around the world, going from the east to the west, and you're traveling, at what point do you start going west? I mean, it, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. In other words, when we, when we repent of our sins, put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's gone. In fact, God himself will put it like this. I will remember their sins and lawlessness no more. And that's mind-boggling. If God knows all things, how is it that he cannot know sin that he's forgiven? And I think what the Scripture is trying to help us understand is when God has forgiven us of our sin, he removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. And God is saying, it's like I have amnesia towards your sin. Now, an all-knowing being can't have amnesia. I'm not saying that God is losing his mind or anything like that. But God himself says, I will remember your sin and lawlessness no more. When God grants forgiveness upon the condition of our a repentance and turning back in faith to him, he remembers it no more. Chris Bronze in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, puts it like this. When God forgives, he commits or promises that he will no longer hold the sin against the person being forgiven. My friends, for me, that's such a comforting thought. I have sinned in in so many different ways. I feel like I continue to abuse God's grace in so many ways, even as I, as I want to follow Jesus. But it's comforting to know that I can come before him, confess my sins. He removes them as far as the east is from the west, so that you know, I, I can come to him now and say, Lord, could you, could you do this? And he doesn't go, you know what? You know, last Tuesday you did that thing, and I said I forgave you. I'm actually I'm not going to answer your prayer because of that. That's not how God works. I will remember your sin no more. How amazing is that? And here's the fourth. Let me just say with this, that doesn't necessarily mean, my friends, that there aren't certain consequences that still are in in effect. For example, think back to the story of, of King David, one of the great kings of Israel. He was at one point described as a man after God's own heart. And one day, this man who had devoted so much of his life to following God, to seeking to be pleasing in his sight, lusts after a woman named Bathsheba. To the point where he invites her into his palace, has an adulterous affair with her, gets her pregnant, and in in an effort to cover this up, has her husband murdered. And he's blind to his own, the own mess he's creating as he suppresses reality and tries to live as if what God has said is not true and tries to control this situation until Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him. And all of a sudden, his eyes are open. And in the wake of that, he, he writes Psalm 51, which is a beautiful psalm of repentance. It has been a comfort for so many people. We actually sing a, a version of it here at Mercy Hill Church from time to time. And even though God granted him forgiveness, there was still things that were put in motion that began to be the undoing of, of David. And you see the ripple effects of it in his family and the families of others and in his children and the eventual split of the kingdom. So even though God had forgiven him us sin, there are still consequences to his actions. And sometimes that's the case with us. Sometimes with one another, we can forgive sin. We can, we can remember it no more. But sometimes there are consequences that still to play out. And so, you know, you might steal money from me, and I can say, okay, I forgive you for that. But the justice system still takes place, right? And you're put in jail, and you have to go to court and, and pay your time on that. So, okay, here's the fourth and final peg to hang our thoughts on God's forgiveness is free, but costly. God's forgiveness is free, but costly. Now, listen carefully what I'm saying here it costs us nothing but in one sense, it cost God everything. The Bible tells us that God so loved this world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. The scripture tells us that that Jesus himself was willing to go to the cross, to have the sins of his people placed upon him so that our sins could be condemned in his being, so that you and I may have, have life, an eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, but it cost God deeply to put forward his son. And so when we say that forgiveness is costly, it's free but costly, it's free to us. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to earn it. It's simply given as a kind gift to God, from God to us. But it was very costly for him. And likewise, when we forgive other people, we're saying, I'm going to lay down my demand to hurt you back or to make you pay for what you did. I like the way that Pastor Tim Keller put it. He said, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of sin yourself. So when you say to someone, I I forgive you, you're no longer making that person pay. You're you're not seeking to to hurt them back. You're, You're in a sense absorbing what they did in order to forgive it. And then Keller goes on and says, everyone who forgives great evils, goes through a death into resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. That's a very powerful um, prosaic way of saying it is indeed costly sometimes to grant forgiveness to one another. But when that happens, we bring healing. In a world that wounds us in a thousand ways, we don't play tit for tap. By forgiving one another, we actually can bring healing to a world in a thousand ways. And just as I wrap this up, I want to make a reference to this. This is a complicated situation. But you remember the gentleman who went to a school and shot some Amish girls. Do you remember that story back in 2006? And a couple years ago, the Washington Post ran this article. And the title of the article was, Her Son Shot Their Daughters Ten Years Ago. Then these Amish families embraced her as a friend. And so this is what the article said. A single word in black cursive font hangs above a large double-pane window in Terry Roberts' sunroom. It says, forgiven. The word and the room itself, a gift built by her Amish neighbors just months after the unimaginable happened, is a daily reminder of all that she's lost and all that she's gained these last 10 years. This simple, quiet, rural life she uh, knew shattered on October 2nd, 2006, when her oldest son, Charles Carl Roberts IV, walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse on a clear, unseasonably warm Monday morning. The 32-year-old husband and father of three young children ordered the boys and adults to leave, tied up the little girls between the ages of six and 13, and shot them, killing five and injuring others before killing himself. Terry Roberts' husband thought they'd have to move far away. He knew what people thought of parents of mass murderers. He believed they were they would be ostracized in their community, blamed for not knowing the evil their child was capable of. But in the hours after the massacre, as Amish parents waited in a nearby barn for, wo- or for word about whether the daughters had survived, an Amish man named Henry arrived at the Roberts' home with a message. Let me pause there and just imagine if you were in this position and someone from the community who your son just murdered arrives with a message. What do you think is going to be said? The families did not see the couple as an enemy. Rather, they saw them as parents who were grieving the loss of their child, too. Henry put his hand on the shoulder of Terry Roberts' husband and called him a friend. The world watched in amazement as on the day of their son's funeral nearly 30 Amish men and women some of the parents of the victims came to the cemetery and formed a wall to black out to block out rather the media cameras parents whose daughters had died at the hand of their son approached the couple at the burial and offered condolences for their loss then just 4 weeks after the shooting the couple was invited to meet with all the families in the local fire hall One mother held Robert's gaze as both women's eyes blurred with tears, they said. They were all grieving. They were all struggling to make sense of the senseless. But the Amish did more than forgive the couple. They embraced them as part of their community. When Robert's underwent treatment for stage four breast cancer in December, one of the girls who survived the massacre herself helped clean her home as she returned from the hospital. A large yellow bus arrived at her home around Christmas and Amish children piled inside to sing her Christmas carols. Terry Roberts said, the forgiveness is there. There's no doubt that they forgive. And then the article ends with these words. Nothing about her new reality, about coming to terms with her son's demons has been easy, but it would have been unthinkably harder without her Amish friends. No one could ever imagine on that day that something like this would be formed from it, she said. Because of the response of forgiveness, we were able to heal. In a world whose tone wounds us in a thousand ways, here these Amish Christians, and seeking to put into practice the words of Jesus, to forgive others, fleshed it out in a very difficult situation, and in the midst of their own grief, and struggle to, to know what forgiveness looks like. They move toward the parents. Of the son who murdered their kids. Who had killed himself. There was no transaction of forgiveness that could take place there. But they, they seem to move toward her. And to be concerned for her. And her grieving. And to make sure she knew. The forgiveness of sins. And a different kind of healing. Than she would have known. Above all these. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Remember, he's, he's told us to clothe ourselves in compassion, in kindness, in meekness, patience with one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And then he says, "Look, take it, take this belt. <laughs> Above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body." My friends, this idea of forgiveness may be easy in theory, but it's, it's difficult in real life sometimes. And yet, it's in real life that Jesus calls us to a new way of being human. A new way that results when the overflowing of God's forgiveness for us spills out into the lives of others around us. My friends, that is what he is calling us to. So Mercy Hill Church, may you forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven you.